Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for 20-plus years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. Right, Sharon? Yes, I have. That's right. Well, Sharon, we're coming from a different venue today. I know. This is so exciting, looking out on this crowd here today. Yeah, usually I just look at you. <laughs> Poor thing. Yeah. Well, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think we're going to do that today. We are, right right at the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists meeting. We're taping live on stage. That's right. So we have a full audience in front of us, and hopefully they'll get something out of this today, and I think they will. We have two guests that have been with us uh, on several occasions today. Well, they're so well-loved. We always get such positive feedback. Yeah, we got Nancy Marie and Sandy Ouellette, and we want to welcome you guys here. Welcome. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, well, Sandy, you know, you did a talk at the ANA Annual Congress meeting, and I think the watchwords were engage, unite, and evolve. And your presentation was entitled Harnessing the History of CRNA Member Unity to Face Current and Future Challenges. That, that was a mouthful, Sandy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a real mouthful. The ANA and its members have weathered lots of storms, and of course, we all know we're still in the middle of a lot of storms, but they've always emerged stronger as a result of member unity, dedication, and engagement. And I'd like for you just to highlight a few of the, the past challenges that maybe gave us a foundation to weather some of the assaults we're going through now and maybe some of the future assaults. Okay, we have uh, a number of issues and, uh, and challenges that we would just like to sort of uh, spark your interest in, and, and Nancy's going to talk about the first one in terms of uh, one of the most important legal victories ever for the nurse anesthetist, and that was Frank versus Scythe in 1917. We're going to be brief because we want you to have time to speak at the end as well. So Nancy, can you? Okay. And Frank versus South took place in, dealt with an issue that began in Kentucky. And there was a nurse anesthetist named Margaret Hatfield who was giving anesthesia for a surgeon, Dr. Lewis Frank. And she was accused of practicing medicine. And of course, this went to court. And the opinion was very, very important. And even though it was made in 1917, it is still important today. Because essentially, in just plain words, what that decision was is if anesthesia is being administered by a nurse, anesthetist, it is the practice of nursing. If the anesthetic is being administered by a physician, 
is a practice of medicine. And of course, this ruling has never, ever been overturned. And so you can see the significance of it because you know, I'm sure you've read where we've been accused of practicing medicine throughout our career. And yet you come back to this particular opinion, which has stood all these years, which says when we do it, it's nursing. When they do it, it's medicine. So this is the foundation of our entire profession from 1917. Mm -hmm. That's right. Don't y'all find it a little ironic that her name was Hatfield? Hatfield and McCoy's. And And still we're going on like Hatfield's and McCoy's. So, Sandy, how did legislative victory for direct reimbursement in 1986 and the success of that What were some unintended consequences that came about as a result of that? Okay, I want to mention that, Sharon, but if I could have just a second before, I think it's important to stop and talk about the Dagmar Nelson case, Mm -hmm. because that was after Frank versus Scythe. It was was several years after. It was in in 1934, because after Frank versus Scythe, there was still assault for nurse anesthetists. They were carrying a nurse anesthetist away in handcuffs, practicing medicine, Without a in handcuffs? Medical, yeah, without a medical license. And so there was this famous case in California Supreme Court, Dagmar Nelson, and it confirmed, again, the legality of nurse anesthesia practice. And the key words for this, it confirmed that the administration without prescribing is not the practice of medicine. That has relevance today because some states have prescriptive authority, Mm -hmm. some states do not have prescriptive authority, but we can all administer anesthesia. And if you look at emerging trends, ketamine clinics, for example, boards of nursing get very, very nervous if they think the nurse anesthetist has a clinic that is prescribing. But the psychiatrist prescribes, and so we clearly can have these clinics. And Mm -hmm. this was based on on these cases. Fourteen years, both of these cases, or Dagmar and Elson, before AANA was formed in 1931. So why was ANA formed? Because individually, we have no power, no power. Without our big ANA family, we have no protection. And so we need strength in numbers, and that's why we formed. Now, getting to your question, Sharon, and I thank you. In terms of member unity, the road to reimbursement was a seven-year process. It went from 1983 to 1989. It was administered under seven AANA presidents and their boards, so it was 77 people of the ANA in leadership positions. And listen to me, folks, it was 100% member unity that got this legislative victory, and then three years later, the regulation. Because when it was signed into law, finally, with President Reagan in 1986, we thought it was, man, you know, that's the victory. We're done. It wasn't. And unfortunately, I had not served as president of ANA until 1988-89. The next three years under McFadden, and Jan Menino and myself, it was fighting with the Healthcare Finance Administration for parity and reimbursement. And we finally achieved that, and that was then implemented. Direct reimbursement wasn't implemented until 1989. Now, very quickly, because we want to give you time. 
that led to unintended consequences. From the beginning of direct reimbursement through 1989, 60 nurse anesthesia programs closed and none opened. We were graduating less than 600 students a year. We were dying on the vine. And so my husband, not my husband then, see good things happen Within when, you <laughs> <laughs> when you get involved. When you get involved. You can find friends and a husband. Hey, and it worked for me. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Hey. And so anyway, but he appointed the National Commission on Nurse Anesthesia Education. He asked me to chair it. And in 11 months, this huge team of CRNAs and non-CRNAs came up with a plan to turn this around. And without going into detail, the plan was really based on additional clinical sites. In 1989, we had 82 programs and about 82 or a few more clinical sites. Today, we have 120 programs with over 2,000 clinical sites. That gives us security, it gives our students variety, and it is just a wonderful thing because it's hard to close a program when you have so many contractual relationships with all these clinical sites. And the point to be made, it was engagement of those clinical CRNAs and those chiefs that willingly opened these clinical sites and basically saved this profession at a time that we were most vulnerable, I think, in our whole history. Mm -hmm. So I want to give a shout out to all of our CRNAs that are chiefs and all the CRNAs that teach our students. Let's give them a big round of applause. So Nancy, you know, we've had this ongoing issue for years about federal supervision of nurse anesthetists in Medicare. So why is it important for us to remove federal supervision and what role did the states play in the opt-out of the 17 states that have? Well, I think it's I want to be sure that everybody's on the same page because this particular supervision that we're talking about is in Part A Medicare, not Part B. Part A is where the hospitals get paid. And it doesn't say that it has to be an anesthesiologist. It says that it has to be a physician. And what was happening at the time, and this began when I was president in 1996-97, was there was a, a real... A huge number of residents that were coming out and they weren't finding jobs and so they were going out into rural areas to small hospitals that had like maybe one nurse anesthetist and convincing the hospital and particularly the obstetricians that their liability was increased by working with CRNAs and so the CRNA would lose his or her job the resident the well, he was an anesthesiologist then, would take that job. But then when a job opened up in a bigger, more attractive, attractive place to live, the anesthesiologist would leave. Now, there were two problems here. That left them without anesthesia. And also, there was rural pass-through money that went to these rural hospitals. And they lost that pass-through money because... You cannot get it if you had an anesthesiologist. And the other downside to that was you could never get it again once you lost it. And so that was the reason for why getting rid of that supervision was very important. And this did not happen in a year. It was not finally settled until 2001. And essentially what happened was we had supervision out of Part A. It went to President Clinton's desk. 
and he didn't sign it until that period of time before he went out of office and Bush, too, came into office. And in that period of time, there's a moratorium. And so Bush came back and took that away from us. And so we had to lobby for what we eventually got, which was the opt-out. Now, as Sharon said, we currently have 16 states that have opted out. Now, this has to happen at a state level. The governor has to request an opt-out. And it takes members at the state level to push that and to lobby for that. So that is where the members of each individual state become so important and the state association becomes so important because it's not going to happen if only one or two people are asking for it to happen. I think it's 17 states now, okay. right? Yeah. Kentucky? Yeah. Kentucky yeah. was the last yeah. state. Yes, yeah, as, as I'm sitting here listening to this, though, I just keep hearing kind of the same things that we talk about today. We were talking about 20 and 30 years ago in this industry. <laughs> and, you know, I, there's a lot of students in the in the crowd out here today. I think there's over 200, 200. students or so that are that are at this meeting. You know, I just keep going in the back of my head saying, you know, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, Sandy? And I know you say this a lot. Yeah. But this historical series teaches us about where this industry has been so that we don't make those mistakes moving forward in the future. And I think that's why this stuff is so important. It is. You're correct. Um, it really is. And Sandy brings up another question. You know, the ANA threw their support behind uh, Bond versus NME hospitals. And what role did that play also in the subsequent 1986 Olts versus St. Peter's Hospital, which was the only successful antitrust victory for CRNAs? Yeah, very good. Vinnie Bond was a nurse anesthetist in California who had been uh, released from his job, and so he was very interested in uh, filing an antitrust case. And the lower courts had pretty much decided that as nurse anesthetists, we are not protected under antitrust laws. That was in 1984-1985. I was a young member of the board then, and the ANA became involved not because Vinnie Bond had a antitrust case he could win. He's in California, and one of the many things you have to show to win an antitrust case is market share. He had many places he could work. He was not restricted to that one hospital. But because of the ruling by the court, which really damaged all CRNAs, ANA helped fight this. And in fact, it was determined that when CRNAs are working with physicians other than anesthesiologists, they can compete with anesthesiologists and thus have standing to bring a federal antitrust suit under circumstances prescribed by antitrust law. Now, fast forward by one year, two CRNAs, Taff Oltz and Laurie Oltz, very good friends. I've been talking to Taff all week on his case again because of some other work that I'm doing. But they filed an antitrust case in Montana against St. Peter's Hospital where Taff worked. And uh, he could show and proved over a long period of time that the hospital in this little rural area and anesthesiologists conspired to replace him as an independent practitioner that was competing with the anesthesiologist for jobs and cases. In fact, his fee was less than the anesthesiologist. He was getting most of the cases, and that did not bode well. I want you to know that you don't go into something like this lightly. Mm -hmm. It took 16 years 
from the filing of this suit until final settlement, or from 1980 when it began, and then the Bond case came along in 84, 85, and then they won. If you look at our history books, the Taft case was won in 1986, but the final fee uh, settlement was not scheduled or not finalized until 1996. So it was a 16-year process. Mm. And it was interesting during this process that they had a non-disclosure cause on the fee because I had been dying to know how much did the Taft alts? Did you find out? I did not. Uh. And I I will tell you, uh, my husband and I spent... Or you just won't say we, it we here. Were, no, no, no. We were in, in Myrtle Beach with uh, Taff and Laurie a number of years ago. And we were into several martini cocktail hour that went on and on. And I thought to myself, one more martini, and I'm going to get this fee out of Laurie. And, uh, and, uh, were but, you buying, Sandy? No, no. <laughs> but I never did. But what she did say, their attorney fees were over $2 million. And she said, but we did okay. <laughs> That's as close wow. as I could get. But... Taft uh, received the Aragon Practitioner Award in 2012, and I find just this week in talking to him, and his, his, and I think it's very important for all of us to hear what he had to say at that night. He said, I've been told throughout my career that as a CRNA, you can't compete with anesthesiologists, and you couldn't evaluate MD anesthesia quality. Both of these assumptions were determined by federal and state courts to be false. As a CRNA, you are only restricted by your own self-imposed limitations. Believe in yourself, believe in your profession, and believe and support the AINA, and I would say also the NCANA, because that is our survival. Absolutely. And Sandy, you've arranged for them to actually be on the podcast with us, so we'll get a little bit more in detail and and see if we can dig that number out on them. (laughs) That's right. That's going to be a prize for your podcast, because it is the only only antitrust case ever won in history by CRNAs. But Sandy, I'm sure this goes on every day all across the country. I'm sure CRNAs out here have had to deal with situations like that. Yeah. Yeah, but, but to get an antitrust, it's not an employed CRNA. You have it's to be an independent, independent billing right. contractor, just like an anesthesiologist or billing contractors. And so I sort of missed that, and Taft made that clear to me this week when we were talking about these issues. It's interesting. Yeah, well, you know, I've always said that the reason why CRNAs are so different is we compete head-to-head, toe-to-toe. We are exactly interchangeable with our medical friends exactly interchangeable they don't get twisted up about mps because mps have somewhat of a limited scope they have to have collaborative agreements the obgyns don't get twisted up about midwives because they can't do c-sections but we are exactly interchangeable you're absolutely right sharon i have never heard my cardiologist say i'm a physician cardiologist (laughs) i have never heard my surgeon say i'm a physician surgeon Mm. but anesthesiologists today through the ASA, watch words. I'm a physician anesthesiologist. And it goes back to what you're saying. You're absolutely right. And Sandy, some people are saying nurse anesthesiologist. Yes. And that's another, another uh, we, topic. That, that we don't is want to another get you off whole that one, but. big topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Nancy, tell us about the MANA antitrust and fraud case against Twin City Hospitals in 2004 and why it was important. I remember this went on for years and years and years. So give them a little overview about that, please. 
Well, this involved hospitals in the Twin City as well as in St. Cloud, which was a smaller place outside of the Twin Cities. But what happened, or what the CRNAs realized, and this was realized because the CRNAs were employed by the hospital. The anesthesiologists were not. They contracted with the hospital as a group. And the hospital told the CRNAs that instead of being a revenue-generating center, they were a cost center. In other words, they were costing the hospital. The hospital was losing money by having them. And so, I'm sorry, I was beating the table. (laughs) It comes through on the podcast. And so my hand got slapped. We all get excited sometimes. Okay. But anyway, so... The CRNAs began to do investigating this. Don't ask me how, but somehow they found out how the anesthesiologists were billing. And what the anesthesiologists were doing is they were billing one-to-one. And when you bill one-to-one, the anesthesiologist is supposed to stay in the room all the time. But they weren't doing that, and they also were not supervising one-to-one. But if you truly supervise one-to-one, by the rule, they get all the money. And it doesn't make any difference whether or not the CRNA is there or not. They get the money. And so they were getting all of the Medicare reimbursement, and the hospital wasn't getting any. And that's why the hospital said they were a cost center. And so they, actually the whole suit was wrongful termination of CRNAs, antitrust violation, and Medicare fraud. Now what ended up was that they won the part on fraud, not antitrust. And this was a long battle also. It went on when I was on the board and after I left the board, and the AANA loaned MANA money to help fight this, which I will tell you, once this was settled, MANA paid every bit of that money back to the AANA, every penny of it. But the other thing that was important about this is it became very, very clear what one-to-one supervision or medical direction meant, but also this frightened the ASA, although they wouldn't admit to that, okay, but it did. And we got some revision to the seven conditions of payment under Part B Medicare for the anesthesiologist, which we call the TEFRA. So there was some relief that ASA asked to loosen those up because of how easy it is to commit fraud with those seven conditions. And so that was something that came to us that opened up our ability to be more independent even in an anesthesia care team setting. So that was a gain for us. You know, in my scholarly process while I'm going back to school to get my DMP, I wonder all the time, am I going to get my Medicare card or my degree first? But that being said, in an assignment that I've had to do this past week, I didn't realize, but 25% of all Medicare fraud is anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So why? And it's because of those seven conditions. I know. We're going to do a whole podcast on that. Cause I hate, this is, I hate the this seven is, This is something Nancy goes off on all the time. But while we're talking about the ASA, 
Let's just dive on in a little bit deeper, Sandy. And what role has the ASA played in all of, all of the challenges and the crises that we've had over the last few years, over all the years, since 1937? Yeah, well, actually, they were formed somewhere in 1935, 1936. It was uh, several years after our founding in 1931. But to answer your question, Sharon, they wrote the script for our challenges and our crises. And uh, we must never forget that shortly after their founding in 1937, they came out with a major plan to eliminate CRNAs or control anesthesia in all cases. That was printed in the Bulletin of the American College of Surgeons in 1937, and I happen to have a copy of that. They have never ever taken their eye off that gold. From 1937, they will either control us with believing that anesthesia is a practice of medicine, or they will eliminate us. And so um, they went on to form at first what was a joint anesthesia care team statement that both national organizations agreed to. Around 1982, they withdrew their support for the joint statement and came out with a unilateral statement, which basically said nurse anesthetists are a stopgap measure until such time that every anesthetic in the United States can be administered by a physician. And, you know, again, never taking their eye off that goal. And we've tried several times to have some positive or valuable interaction with the group. It fails every single time. A student reminded me in teaching history just a year or so ago, he said, I think I get it. It's like Palestine and Israel. Mm. You know, how can you ever have a positive dialogue with a group that's intent is to eliminate you or control your actions when we are adequately prepared, more than that, at high academic levels for knowledge, skills, and practice of of nurse anesthesia. We see them coming in in subtle ways all the time. The recent ACOG statement that we're a little concerned about, the 2018 revision to the ACT statement by them, most restrictive ever. And then looking at just this past meeting they had, the Surgeon General of the ASA was at their meeting and spoke very highly of the anesthesia work by anesthesiologists and anesthesia assistants. CRNAs were not mentioned at that meeting. And uh, so in terms of looking at the ACT statement, and for the students here, I want you to understand I have good friends that are anesthesiologists. I am not really opposed to individual anesthesiologists, but we have to understand that their ultimate goal is and has been to eliminate or control. AANA believes the ACT statement demeans CRNAs. We believe it's restrictive to practice. It inhibits productivity of both providers when you have to meet all these conditions of payment through the TEFRA, the Tax Equity Physical Responsibility Act. It's a wasteful model for anesthesia personnel, and um, it is the most costly model. And so that is pretty much in summary of our particular belief. And again, I think there's unfortunately things we could do together, but we can't get by this hurdle. And Sandy, how many anesthesiologists were at this last ASA meeting? I do not know. There were over 15,000 anesthesiologists at this meeting. Yeah. Out of 35,000 around the country. 
fifteen thousand. Right. Well, you and I bet there wasn't, a, there wasn't a single OR that was delayed or not <laughs> run with or without you supervision. You know, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But I br- you bring up a good point, though, Jeremy, because we average about four thousand people yeah. at our national meetings. Out of fifty-five thousand. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Well, see, you can't go from a one to two supervision ratio to a one to four or a one to six. So everybody, anesthesiologist in your department, can go to the meeting. Well, I mean, you can't do two rooms of anesthesia at a time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, even at the state level, what uh, I just looked up on labor statistics online. For another paper I had to do, and there are three th- over 3,000 nurse anesthetists employed in North Carolina and only about 660 anesthesiologists employed. You have to be careful at what numbers you look at. Right. They'll put out and say they're over 1,000. Well, 400 of them don't work. So My yeah. husband used to say if you look at the ASA director of members, he can pick out a lot every single time that are dead. <laughs> I bet they're voting. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the ASA membership is, is aging as well. You know, I think 80, oh, yeah. 80% of their membership, I believe, are over the age of 45. And the average age right now is 55. So they, they also have that problem that we're facing yeah. in this industry as well. So yeah. we'll, we'll save that for another talk. You know, Sandy, we always talk about member unity and engagement, and I think that was the theme of ANA's meeting this year. And that's really been the fire that's fueled the ANA and its evolution over the, all these decades. In the current state of the ANA union, what, what can members do today in the future to ensure that the ANA succeeds and continues to be strong moving forward? Well, before we go into what we can do and what will happen if we don't do it. Trying to read the tea leaves. We have very few benchmarkers of what the unity is, but it is very disturbing to me that there is a continual decline in ANA membership. Now, I think North Carolina Association is a a blessed association. We have greater than 90%, way greater than 90% Mm -hmm. membership, whereas some of our states have lost 30 and 40% of their members in recent years. The ANA membership is below 90% now. When I was president of ANA, and I granted it was 30 years ago this year, we had a 97% group that was uh, members. And um, we'll talk in a minute about why that's so important. Uh, Nancy, do you have anything to add about, you know, the state of the union now and the few benchmarkers we can see? Well, I think one of the things that is interesting to me is, like Sandy, when I was president in 1996-97, we still had 97 to 98% of CRNAs who were members of AANA. And that is very important because it's very helpful when you go to lobby for something that CRNAs really need to be able to tell Congress that you have a membership of 97 to 98% rather than going and saying, well, our membership is 83% or 81%. You have so much more power when you can say that. And so it's very, very important to be a member of AANA because AANA is your advocate and without it we couldn't do this like without our state associations or without our 
our uh, national association. The other thing about decreasing membership is it gives you less people to be leaders of the association. It gives less people who will serve on committees. And you're just, it puts you at such a disadvantage, you know, when you're really trying to move the profession forward and do things like increasing scope of practice in states that need an increase in scope in practice. Every time a member decides not to be a member again, we lose valued, needed money in our financial war chest to fight not only what we fight and advocate for on the national level, but also on the state level, mm-hmm. since so, a certain percentage of our dues comes back to the state. Now, Sandy and Nancy, I, from my understanding, we're having the biggest problem with that zero to five year mm-hmm. out group. You know, new students, new grads who've been out zero to five years tend to not join the ANA, at least not during that period. And that seems to be a big issue. And that's one of the reasons we really think this historical series is very, very mm-hmm. important so that you guys understand the value of membership in the ANA based upon where it's been. And we could get into something else later on, but it's not always going to be as good as it is today. And you, you three have seen this cyclical nature of being a CRNA, and probably a lot of you have. You want to kind of talk to yeah. that zero to five group? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk to the zero to five group and, and everybody, really, because we're getting to the most important part, I think, of this presentation. And what can we do about it? How can we achieve total member unity and engagement. I've often said without ANA, without AMA, there would still be doctors. Mm -hmm. Without ANA, there would still be nurses. But without ANA, there would not be nurse anesthetists or our nurse anesthetists would not practice and have the professional and financial rewards that we have today. So it's very, very important. Now, how can we achieve that? I believe very strongly that personal values begin in the home. What we become as adults started way back with our parents. And professional values and character begin in our programs, our 120 programs. I believe that that's a huge responsibility for our programs, that it should be a socialization into this profession with a professional role being an expectation from pre-admission to our programs all the way to the very end of our programs. And if applicants come and they do not want to be a part of that organization, then I think we should look for other applicants. And at Wake Forest, I'm invited to give a little lunch, very informal speech to pre-admission students. And I pretty much go into a lot of the things we're talking about today. But I tell them, and I think Dr. Riker sometimes cringes, but I say, if you don't want to come here and be what we always have been since 1942 at Wake Forest, don't come. And he looks at me like, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, but that's the way I feel. I mean, I think. But he still invites you back. Right? He, he invites yeah. me back. Well, he's scared of He considers it. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's scared of you. I mean, I am scared of you. Um, you know, the you're first, not scared uh, of the devil, Sharon. Come on. <laughs> I'm afraid of her. Well, you know, but I can remember the first day of class coming in. Number one, I think we're picking up our books, and she lectures for eight hours um, the first day of class. And you told us. You will be a member of the AANA, and I've never let my membership 
drop because, you know, I've always thought there's some bell that goes off at her house (laughs) and she'll come after me if I'm not a member. But I think it's important exactly what you said. These program directors have such power to socialize the students. We can't lay it all on the program directors, but Mm -hmm. certainly it is a place to really begin the nurturing and the socialization into Mm -hmm. this profession. Nancy, what would you add about what we can do? Well, I think, and don't hit me, but, you know, one of the other things that we, I think we could do a little bit better at, and that is listening for AANA to listen to members. Now, don't hit me because I'm going to end on the right note, okay? But, you know, I think that, and just recently on social media, one of the board members asked members a question, what does AANA need to do for the profession or for you? It was how I do. Yes. yes. And some of the things that came Truth. out were like removal of restrictions to practice, full scope of practice for new graduates coming out of programs, get rid of supervision. Which we've been trying to do. Yes. Forever. Um, yes. And another issue is to get full scope of practice for CRNAs who have been out for quite a few years. Because, again, like I said, the seven conditions hamper us. It's very different now with those compared to when I graduated. And also the anesthesia assistant issue. And so these are things that members want. And so in my mind, what should happen with these and other issues of the members is that the AANA prioritizes them. You can't go after everything at one time. You have to decide what's the most important. And then I think the members deserve to know what that prioritization is and why they were listed in that order. Because you also have to think about the money that you've got to fight the battles. And you also have to think about other things can come up that you don't expect. Always. So, so you, can't, you can't just take a whole group of stuff. And that's what we did that when we decided supervision. We needed to do something about Part A supervision. We prioritized the issues, and that was number one. We didn't go after the others. We did if we had a chance, but that wasn't our priority. And the other thing, too, I said I would get back to the members. I think when members ask things of the AANA, and the AANA is trying to address your issues, then we have to respond to what AANA needs to carry through with getting that. For example, PAC money, uh, mm-hmm. money to go to the foundation to do research, because we have done research to prove that we are cost effective, that we are safe, just as safe as anesthesiologists practicing in our practice setting. And the other thing is, you know, answer surveys. I know you hate surveys. I hate surveys. But, you know, answer your surveys. If you need, they need you to write letters to your congressman, write them. And, you know, get to know your congressman. Let them know who you are on the state level as well as the national level. But it's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street where... Members give information to the organization, and the organization gives you what you want. You've got to be unified and working together and everyone doing their job in order to push 
the profession forward because we definitely don't want to be sitting here doing nothing happening for the next 20 years and we certainly don't want 20 years from now to look back and see what we've lost. Very important, Nancy, and we're running out of time, and I do want to get some questions from the audience. So I'm going to so say... So if you have questions, well, on, come on the, up to the Let me just say one more thing. I, I, I want to say a couple things, too. Okay, well, on Nancy's quickly, point, quickly. really quickly, really quickly. <laughs> Sandy's herding me in now. Look at this. Um, but, you, you know, back to... Are the, you scared? I, I'm scared. Um, <laughs> it is we, close We've to got Halloween. a good relationship. I, I remember, I'll tell a really quick story of going to get my uh, concealed carry permit and walking into the Forsyth <laughs> County Sheriff's Department, and who's sitting in the lobby but... Mr. With her Lett. gun? Sure. And you know, Sandy, you know Sandy's you voice is very booming. And so I'm talking to Sandy, and she goes, yeah, I got my judge already waiting for somebody to break in my house. So uh, <laughs> it, it, we go way back. So, But, but no, Nancy, to your point, I think as I look at this industry, obviously as an outsider viewpoint, you know, literally I see the same people at every meeting I go to. Whether it's this meeting, whether it's the A&A meeting, you've probably got 5 to 7% of the total population that is really active. And Sharon always says when I say this, that if you pay your dues, you're, you're active. You're active. But, but I think it requires more than that. And Randy Moore and I did a series called, and it was actually an idea that I had, was, you know, what if the A&A didn't exist? Now, obviously, mm-hmm. I come at this from a purely financial standpoint in what I do most of the time. You know, I can look at all of you out here and I can tell you with great certainty that if the ANA didn't exist, you would not make what you make today. I guarantee you, you would not make that. Bill, I'm looking at you over there. You know what the average CRNA salary is in North Carolina for a W-2 CRNA? He probably doesn't know. It's around 168000 170000 So what if you walked in next week and the ASA and the anesthesiologist got their way and all the stuff that we're talking about up here came to fruition and they said, you know what? You're no longer going to make that 160000 You're now making $95,000 a year. Would that get your attention? Get our attention, wouldn't it? And that's what Most of you wouldn't even roll over in the bed for $95,000. <laughs> but, but that's what this advocacy, being a member, being part of this organization, doing things, that's what it means to you personally. And I think, and I've talked to Randy, and, and it's just my mindset on this, is the ANA's got to do a better job of equating what they do down to the individual person. The ASA's done that. You mean nurses are going to take my job right. and I'm going to lose my $450,000 salary and I came out of school after so long with $400,000 in debt and you mean nurses are going to take that away from me. Think about how that fired them up and that's their persona. That's what they've done. So that's just my viewpoint as I, I sit here and listen to this is, you know, I think we've got to do a better job at that level to say, what does this really mean to me individually? Because so many times we just look at it in the broad brush and you think, oh, they're just up there talking about history. It really doesn't matter to me. No, we're talking about you, your income and your personal situation. And so we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, these ladies to our right, paved the way for practice for every single one of us sitting in this room. And if they had not done what they did, we wouldn't be making, I mean, my salary is doubled, over doubled since I came out of school. And it's because of things that happened before. 
Yeah. The average salary in 1985 before direct reimbursement was $24,000 a year for CRNA. Wow. My husband, also a CRNA, past president of ANA twice, his goal was to live long enough to make $50,000 as a CRNA. God, was he surprised. <laughs> <laughs> one, one other thing. Yep. Please, please, folks, we've got to do a better job with social media. We have got to quit the assaults on each other. We have got to really express our opinions and not be disagreeable because there's divisive issues. Nurse anesthesiologist was a divisive issue, CPC. And the fact now that you may not know, but when you don't comply after 2020 with CPC, you're no longer allowed to use CRNA. It's fraudulent if you do. And that's very serious to me, and that's a topic for another day. So please, please, our greatest threat is not external. It's internal. So we've got to corral social media and move forward. And I want to leave my comments on a positive note. We have never been in a better time than today to be a CRNA if we don't screw it up. You know, (laughs) if it doesn't happen, it will be because of us. Because the bottom line, what the country and the world needs is quality, access, and cost. And we are the solution to all of that. And there was an article in a journal by an anesthesiologist on the future of anesthesiologists. He quoted a Princeton economist, Hugh Reinhardt, and what he said, nurses are like insurgents. They are occasionally beaten back, but they will win in the long run. Economics and common sense are on their side, end of quote. So if we don't screw it up, man, we're golden. That's that's a great way to end it on, Sandy. So I think at this point, we're going to take some questions from the audience and and let you guys uh, answer those questions. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask.
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny.